None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Cannabis Museum Community Hemp Fair, Saturday, April 22nd, 1pm to 6pm, live music, hemp speakers. Does that mean the actual sound system and the speakers is made out of hemp or <laughs> there's going to be people speaking about hemp or they're going to be like hemp people like sh- scarecrows, straw men speaking <laughs> as. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think it's probably yes to all of those except for the hemp speaker one. I've yet yeah. to, you know, unless Henry Ford developed those alongside his car made out of hemp but uh yeah, yeah we've got some hemp farmers coming in um we've got some other folks in the hemp industry we're going to have live spinning of like fiber hemp into cordage and all of that's to sort of celebrate so the museum just opened uh in its new location in athens ohio we have hours wednesday through saturday 12 to 5 when you can generally swing through and the current exhibit that's up now is called hemp to hackles and so it's a bunch of old farm equipment and cordage and like different ropes, different clothes, like all the stuff that you can make out of hemp. But it starts with the hemp field. And you sort of, as you walk through the exhibit, you, you know, go through the different stages of processing it. And by the time you end up at the end, you'll, you know, you get a smorgasbord of like, you know, collector's items on rope and, and uh, hemp clothing and all the different uses there. And in fact, in the gift shop, we have some hemp clothing available as well. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. Awesome. I th- I think we'll come down to that. I think that's when we will visit the... That would be the time. The Cannabis Museum. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I know my wife is busy planning. You know, they're there every week calling vendors. There's going to be food there and some food trucks. Awesome. Um, and then I just got asked this morning if I could, like, MC. Uh, the event, you know, in between all of the different speakers and uh, panels and stuff. So oh, cool. Be a good time. Let's get into it. So this is our 40th episode. So I thought we'd do one of your old papers. This is from 2010, and it's Modeling Withdrawal Syndrome in Zebrafish. It's from Behavioral Brain Research. Big team from Tulane University Medical School in New Orleans, where I was about this time last year. Fantastic. (laughs) Did you go down there for Mardi Gras? Mardi Gras just ended. No, we went for St. Patrick's Day. So it was like mini Mardi Gras. There's... There was only four parades while we were there. <laughs> Irish Channel, Cabbage in the Streets. Yeah. I've been there. We were there. Yeah, that was fun. It was really fun. I've never been to New Orleans before, but but so how, how long did you live down there? Uh, I was there for five years, yeah. um, four years for grad school, but then I, I did a little stint in Southern California, but that was also my first time down there. I had just finished undergrad and was looking for graduate school opportunities where I wanted to get into something that was psychopharm, so drugs, brain, and behavior. 
And essentially, there was uh, a call for graduate students to help set up a new zebrafish um, psychopharmacology lab down at Tulane University in New Orleans. And if it, you know, then I called, interviewed. It was like, okay, this is this is behavioral research focused on the nervous system that involves controlled substances, and all the people were cool. And I'm like, I. I'm in, you know, Northlands wasn't even on my radar at that point. And to be, you know, to be honest with you about it, I haven't, you know, I haven't lived down there for at least 10 years, but the background on my phone is still live Oaks in the street of new Orleans. You know, I, they say, once you, once you're there, you, when, if you're there and then you leave, you sort of always long to come back. Hell yeah. That's our experience. We, it was fun. And uh, yeah, we did everything. We went on that street with the live Oaks. We took the uh, street cars we're yeah. actually we're going to San Francisco this year. We're, there, it's cable cars. In New Orleans, it's street cars. And Pittsburgh used to have trolleys. I wish we still had them. Some people call the uh, above ground trains uh, trolleys too. Uh-huh. They're not really uh-huh. trolleys. It's funny because they have the whole like get the money off the tourist culture there. People, you know, uh, they say where'd you get your shoes, and if you tell them, they say give me money. I don't, I don't even know how that uh-huh. works. But on your one, feet. The you got them sc- on your feet. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the scam that is relative to this podcast was when we went down last year, like nobody knows if weed's legal from one state to the other now. So like people will book a vacation there and be like, oh, I guess weed might be legal in Louisiana. It's not. <laughs> so they land hemp is legal and CBD is legal and hemp flour and hemp flour rolled into joints. So they'll have like trucks on the street that say pre-rolls and they'll have big marijuana flowers and like Scooby-Doo with stoned eyes and they'll be selling pre-rolls. But people are like, oh, yeah, hook me up, hook me up. Meanwhile, they're getting uh, some CBD hemp there. So, for sure yeah, yeah. That, even before all the medical stuff took off like even you know 2010 when i was down there they had that same truck but they were giving out suckers that were essentially like cannabis flavored but there was no yeah. thc in there you know and they're, it, they're, yeah they have that true. too edibles they call them edibles but you know yeah yeah if they you, don't if tell you what's in, them. in the french quarter be leery right especially yeah. if you're an out-of-towner <laughs> because all of the stores like you know if you're gonna buy beer before you go in the French Quarter, it's one of the best things about New Orleans. If you if you're going out drinking, you can just go to a gas station, get a 12 pack, and walk down the sidewalk with your own 12 pack rather yeah. than paying the elevated prices at the bars. Um, but if you buy it on Canal Street, it's for sure like uh, five to seven dollars more expensive than if you just went into downtown, maybe two or three blocks, and bought from a gas station there. There's a way to live. Cheaply also, another pro tip: the best the best fried chicken down in that area is from uh brothers the the uh, gas station brothers the gas stations that's that's good to know i was gonna ask where the best gumbo was i uh one of my favorite restaurants and it was called dante's it was uptown where tulane is um but i know for sure that that restaurant's not there anymore they turn over so quickly so like frankly i would be surprised if 15% 15% of the restaurants that were there when I were there are still around. Like it's, you know, it's generally yeah. the, the service industry like that turns over quickly, but in New Orleans, uh, even quicker. We went, to, I got it at Antoine's, which was, it was like our fancy lunch. And uh, we were down there eating it and a, and all of a sudden we look over Tommy Lee Jones walks through the door with like <laughs> two younger dudes. And I think we're, there's a movie being filmed 
through there, and they, like, he went up, they have a whole section for celebrities, so he went up in the celebrity section, and the young waiter was like, you know who that was? Yep, the guy from Men in Black. <laughs> I was like, Men in Black? I've known him from way longer than that. What about uh-huh. The Fugitive? That yeah, is no- Nicholas yeah. Cage, John Goodman, all sort of like just random. Yeah. They just show up somewhere. Nick Cage was Mardi there, Black. and they, they did like a cartoon of him in the paper of like him drunk or something because he has these weird uh, – grave down there that looks like a pyramid that it's his grave that he already bought so uh-huh. that's uh-huh. interesting anyway that was only one small part of that study <laughs> so for this okay so you studied diazepam ethanol morphine and caffeine yes that's the yes, four yes. so you probably did you have to get a dea license for morphine yes uh, okay. we had to get a dea license for all of this yep so what was the process of obtaining a DEA license like to do this study? Good question. So the principal investigator of the lab uh, is a Russian citizen who moved to the U.S. And I thought that that might like um, entangle things a little bit. But like essentially we filled out paperwork, um, did background checks. You have to get the university, you know, like the head of your department to sign off on it. You're in the Department of Pharmacology. You have to provide them with um, like the detailed protocols, all the steps of the experiments that you're doing and like what you're doing them in, how quickly you think you're going to be like moving through, like what kind of estimates on the amounts that you're going to need. It's really like essentially the same sort of information that you would put in a grant if you were writing to get research money from a National Institute of Drug Abuse or, or some of the other NIH uh, things. So, you know, really we could take that, the grants that we had already written and got funded to a certain degree, put that into this paperwork, and then you send the packet off to uh, the DEA. Um, You also have to describe your um, protocols for storing, disposing, you know, and handling the controlled substances. And so we had to get, um, we had to like get the locks changed on all of our lab doors. We had to get uh, fireproof safes. We had to like make, I remember making inventory sheets, you know, of course the PI's name was on all of this, but as the like lead graduate student in the lab, I was the one that was actually in charge of like actually moving and, and doing all this stuff. But like, especially as you notice too, you know, I don't know exactly how many folks are on this particular paper, but we had a lot of people cycle through that lab. Um, a lot of like maybe 40% of these folks are undergraduates that were in Tulane's neuroscience program. Um, some of them are medical students that were in Tulane's medical school. Some of them were graduate students that were like in the same program that I was in, either they were going for their master's or their graduate degree. Um, but, you know, we had to do things like, you know, only the PI and the lead graduate student are able to access the safe and like weigh things out and then give it to people. Um, and a lot of times, too, like the, the folks that were running the experiments would come in and there would be four vials on the on the workbench, like with water in them. And it would just be A, B and C. And some of those would have nothing in it. And then two of them would have different you know, ratios of what the a drug concentration and you couldn't tell. So they were blinded from what was what. It was actually easier and less road bumps than I thought to actually get the license from the DEA to then, you know, you get basically a number, like as if a doctor has a number for a prescription pad that you use and you get these special forms for ordering controlled substances from chemical companies like Sigma Aldrich. Um, 
And that was, you know, that was it. It was, it was paperwork and like demonstrating that you can handle or you're, you're putting in proper protocols in order to handle, you know, they say controlled substances and, it, and it's to a certain degree, they treat it as if it's nuclear waste, but you know, it's, it's what you got to do. So how many people are granted a DEA license per year? Like how many like scientific teams around the country? Do you know? ballpark i don't i don't know off the top of my head it's different too so like there are a few research labs that were in the pharmacology department at tulane that were investigating like safe alternatives to opiates right the dr zadina's lab they call it the holy grail but it's like you get pain relief and you don't have that addiction potential which i think is a a myth right you're sort of chasing a myth there if it's an opiate Um, but that's a controlled two um, controlled substance so they had the um, license for that. Um, and other labs, you know, I don't think like lidocaine isn't a controlled substance. It may or not be, but essentially the rare part that we got was access to schedule one. So that's basically LSD, PCP, psilocybin, cannabis, you know, all of the level ones. There are a much lower number of labs that have access to um, do research with the controlled substances. And, you know, if I had to guess, I would say less than 50 in the u.s and maybe that's changed but that's just my gut feeling on it it's not necessarily the hard fact that i you know that i've seen any statistics from the nih i think it's increased but you know i know that it's not very big because when you're doing this type of scientific research you of course go to conferences and talk to other groups um, and you review the papers of other groups that are doing things similar to you and we were really the only ones in the adult zebrafish behavior space that had access to these type of controlled substances. I mean, was that just for the morphine that you had to do that or the diazepam? What's what's diazepam? Um, it's a uh, benzodiazepine. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, was it those two you had to do since ethanol and caffeine are both legal substances? Yes, yes. And that those are just the ones that are presented in this paper. Um, there are, I think I've got like 46 papers or so that came out yeah. of this lab. And there's LSD, MDMA, um, psilocybin or psilocin. So it, the, uh, of the ones that are just in this particular withdrawal study, yeah, it was just those, it would just be those two. Does DEA do a lot of like random inspections and stuff like that? No. No, I don't think we were ever randomly inspected. Okay. I've had enough experience with uh, regulators. Like, everything's good if everything's just sort of hunky-dory status quo. Like, if something were to happen and something were to go missing or somebody was to get arrested and then say, you know, something like that, then they'd start coming down. But we never had any issues like that. It seems like one of the goals was to establish that zebrafish could actually be a legitimate way to study psychoactive drug effects was that actually one of the goals exactly you nailed it right on that so like zebrafish were established as an animal model in genetics research and there's a number of like um nice aspects about zebrafish like namely their embryonic development um their bodies are clear for like quite a bit of it in the beginning um and so a lot of the like genetic manipulations um like sonic the hedgehog or the hedgehog genes that control like um when genes get shut off and this turns into a heart or genes get shut off and these turn into skin or say uh um, skin cells or scales 
um, a lot of those were discovered in zebrafish. So there was like a, a foundation of using zebrafish in scientific research, particularly from a genetic perspective. So we sort of like, okay, that's cool. Let's keep that going. Um, but then the, the question was, what about their behaviors and how can we quantify their behavior and how does that even relate to um, like behavioral phenomenon like uh, drug withdrawal? And so like this was one of the, not the first, uh, there was one other group um, up in Canada that I think did ethanol withdrawal and had published on that prior than, than what we did. And so we were able to like look and see what they did with the ethanol prior and say, okay, well, let's try this with a bunch of other drugs. And like really the goal of the entire lab was to um, set a foundation down of like, this is what withdrawal looks like in zebrafish, both behaviorally and physiologically. And then all of the other ones, like this is what psychedelic, uh, you know, this is what psychedelic drugs do. This is what uh, anxiolytic drugs do. So like, this is when zebrafish are not stressed. This is when zebrafish are stressed. Um, and so, yeah, my whole, my whole dissertation was essentially on, can we do that? Is it viable? And can we match the behavior and the physiology? And um, what do we see? So how do we like make a behavioral catalog of how adult zebrafish behave in these different conditions? The other one too is we did social behavior and we did MDMA studies. So like fish in general, you know, they get together in schools and how tight the schools are. So the distance between all of the fish in the school was like a proxy for whether or not it affected social behaviors or not. Oh, that's cool. They're still using zebrafish in a lot of studies, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. been a bunch more labs since since the, our work that have essentially picked up the the 3D tracking and machine learning like uh, swim trajectory methods that I had developed then that are now using those worldwide. That's awesome. Did you do one in Kratom at all? Uh, we did. We, we okay. brewed Kratom in giant, you know, like gallon scientific vats on a hot plate with a stir rod, which is frankly the best way to brew tea, if you ask me. One of the things that we, we sort of realized as we were about to put the fish in, so we'd essentially have like a water and then we'd have a little bit of Kratom, a lot of bit of Kratom, and then we'd put the fish in, you drop them in the tank and then monitor their behavior. But because of the tea, the fish that were in the kratom liquid were in green water and the control was in clear water. And we had to like compensate for the differences in color because we didn't, you know, we wanted to eliminate the potential influence that could have on their behavior. And so what we ended up doing was putting them in there and then turning off the lights completely so they were just in the dark. Um, we probably did it you know, with, let's say anywhere from 15 to 25 fish. And we did it probably, I don't know, five or six times. Um, there wasn't a lot of great data that came out of it, or there weren't a lot of significant differences between the control and the, uh, and the treated fish. Um, and I don't think that it changed their uh, cortisol levels. So their physiology. Um, and I think we also did some where, you know, they were exposed, like, just like in this, uh, in this withdrawal paper that we're looking at, you know, you, you put zebrafish in a liquid that has morphine in it two weeks, they're in there. So they're like getting used to the morphine that's in the water and you keep the morphine levels up and high. And then to induce sort of withdrawal, you pull them out. And then sometimes we would pull them out and give them the loxone. So like it was an immediate withdrawal. We did maybe once or twice pull them out after chronic treatment in morphine and put them in Kratom. 
the sort of the hypothesis was it would help and it would probably reduce the amount of crazy swimming they're doing. It would reduce the amount of cortisol that their body released. So they would be less stressed than versus the ones that just get forced into withdrawal. Um, but ultimately, again, I think like we saw trends that looked that way, but it wasn't, you know, p-value 0.05 statistically mm-hmm. significant. So it never ended up making it to, to a publication. Yeah, I was just looking up on PubMed. There's there's two Kratom studies on zebrafish. Uh, one just came out in 2021. I don't even think I even looked at that one. It's about uh, toxicity assessment. I think at one point you told me the only thing that blew up their hearts was caffeine. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was the biggest one. So like, and it looks like that's in embryos, right? So you can sort of see in the photos there, you can see how the embryos are somewhat clear and how it affects. So they're looking at like, um, does Kratom affect the development of the different body systems? So this is more along the lines of what they traditionally did with zebrafish, where we were specifically looking at zebrafish that were adults, which were essentially like two to five months old. Yes. So because no one had developed or given these controlled substances to zebrafish before, adult <laughs> zebrafish, yeah. we had to establish... Um, just like this, uh, this, this comparative toxology experiment, we had to establish like when does at what dose does it start affecting or modifying their behavior, and at what dose does it become lethal? Yeah. And the very first time we did this, we were we were like dumping in controlled substances like they were fish food from the top. Um, and it would just be like little, you can imagine like a little cloud falling, but it's a little ball that's falling in. And then all of a sudden, of course, the zebrafish just munch it and eat it like it's food. So they're getting a huge dose of morphine. And so we realized very quickly that before we put it in the tank that the fish are in, we either need to mix it in the water and then add the fish, or we need to mix the powder in a, like a smaller vial with water and then pour that water in, uh, into the tank. Um, and so, yeah, we ran these studies every time we wanted to do a new drug, we would figure out at what dose is the threshold dose where we can start noticing changes in their behavior. And at what dose does it become lethal? And, you know, we were pretty, um, you know, we weren't like, it's not like we were killing hundreds of thousands of fish to figure this out. You know, maybe we did five and then we got an average about where around a lethal dose would be. And we could use that information to say like, okay, this would be a low dose. This would be a medium dose. This would be a high dose. And then of course, you know, several milligrams per liter higher than that would be the lethal dose. Yeah. Um, but of all the drugs we did for sure, caffeine was the most alarming in that, uh, I wasn't expecting to get to some point, And then the zebrafish literally like, so you can see its belly explode. It flips upside down and it's dead. And it, you know, you're just, you're not expecting that with caffeine. You're like, Oh, it's just caffeine, you know, say la vie. Let's just scoop it in there. You're expecting it with morphine or ethanol at some point, but gosh, man, caffeine really took us all by surprise. And the fish, like as soon as they got over a certain dose, it was lights out. The only other yeah. thing that's sort of similar to that, um, and then maybe the, you know, it's not the not the uh, my proudest moment, but at one time we were curious what would happen if we put zebrafish in Red Bull, and they also like immediately died. Um, and I don't think it was because. <laughs> of the caffeine per se, I think it might've had something to do with the carbonation and the way that that interacts with their gills. Um, but again, like you expect it to be all right. It'll like, we'll put it in there for a minute. And if it starts looking in distress, we'll pull it out. But these are guys just like, you know, within five, six, seven seconds, they're dead. I got a new, new uh, reincarnation fantasy. I think a zebra fish and an LD 50 study, but which, 
which substance maybe morphine and like pour pour like a little bit of vodka in there or something that'd be perfect yeah well now you don't want to be in a lethal dose study you want to be in an effective dose study yeah but well you know four to six weeks as a zebrafish and then you get reincarnated something else that's oh okay i got you yeah just a quick (laughs) quick in quick out in the outsies i like it so what types of behaviors are you looking for once you give them the drugs once they're in like drug infested waters so the group that was before us they called it a novel tank and it's analogous to what rodents would use um, with a novel environment. But essentially like the theory is if you throw an animal into a new environment that they've never been in, um, they will sort of uh, get to a place where they feel somewhat safe or protective. And then over time, they'll gradually start exploring that environment more for rodents that, you know, that uh, materializes in, Usually you put a rodent in a new environment, it'll stick against a wall or go to a corner. So like two of its, you know, it behind it is blocked by the walls. They'll look out there and then eventually they might start running along the walls. Um, and it's not till like maybe 10 minutes into the experiment while they'll do a cross from the middle, you know, like right across the middle or the center of the table. And so the same with zebrafish. The presumption is that from an evolutionary perspective, One of the most dangerous places for a fish to be is at the surface uh, where they could get, uh, you know, scooped up from birds um, or other predators that are there. And so when you drop a zebrafish in a new environment, our tests were usually about seven minutes long, seven to 10 minutes long, um, but they would go to the bottom. And for the first two minutes or so, they'd stay at the bottom. Then maybe they do like a like a loop and they would cross the halfway point that we had like demarcated for the people that were watching. Okay. So they were at the, so the profile becomes they were at the bottom frozen for two minutes and they made one transition to the top and then they go back down. Um, And eventually at some point, you know, they are going up to the top much more frequently. Um, They're spending time at the top. And so that was the primary endpoint that we could start from where, you know, time spent on bottom time spent frozen versus swimming, and then time spent, you know, at the surface. Other behaviors, and they became like challenging to define, especially between different folks in the lab, but it was called an erratic movement. When you see it, you know what it is, but it's hard to, you know, define objectively, like quantitatively. Um, But they would like, you know, they'd be frozen at the bottom, just sitting there. And then all of a sudden, like do crazy darting behavior, looping all around, you know, maybe it lasts two or three seconds and then they're back at the bottom frozen. So we would call that an erratic movement. And really, you know, when I got there and as we're developing these models, we were scoring all of that where we had two people with clipboards and they were literally, literally tallying like up at the top, down at the bottom, up at the top, down at the bottom, erratic movement. And my contribution to help this lab was to uh, automate that with video tracking software. And then once that hit, you know, like the notion of an erratic movement could be quantified as we had all sorts of new variables available to us. What's their velocity? What are their turn angles? So an erratic movement becomes a sudden jump in swimming velocity with tight turn angles. And so That's really what led to the machine learning. Like once we did video tracking software and we had all sorts of those movement variables, movement patterns, um, it really expanded the amount of differentiation we could see between different substances. Like it was very clear when they're stressed out versus when they're not stressed out. It's like the diazepam that we had in here. 
you give them a diazepam, let them sit in it for two minutes, then put them in the novel environment, and they don't even go to the bottom. They're just chilling up top, like just hanging up there, swimming along the top. But then, you know, you get to withdrawal, you get to social behavior, you get to the psychedelics, uh, just quantifying the top versus the bottom and amount of time frozen or not frozen wasn't really enough to differentiate between the different psychedelics and the neurotransmitter systems they hit. And so the video tracking really helped with that. Okay, so once um, you, took the, you took them out and you put them in clean water, so how do you measure withdrawal in zebrafish? Is that so, the cortisol or is it also have to do with movements and stuff? Also has to do with movements. So the cortisol was a physiological measure. So after they were done swimming in the novel tank for seven to 10 minutes, we would then take them out, euthanize them and put them in like little test tubes um, and usually into like a minus 80 freezer. Um, and then there would be a bunch of like, you know, extraction steps that you would do to just get the amount of cortisol that they had in their whole body. And then we could quantify that. Um, so that was a really good way to say, okay, behavior uh, looks like they're more stressed out. I'll get into the details there. But then when you all, you know, you can say that, but you, you run the risk of anthropomorphizing. Like, you know, is the zebrafish really stressed out? We can't ask it. It looks like it may be stressed out, but we might just be, you know, that might just be our perception. So the, the value of having that physiological measure as well, or you could say they swam like this, which was kind of crazy. They had a lot of erratic movements and their cortisol was two or three times higher than the fish that didn't get the drug treatment. That was a pretty good combination. And so, for drug withdrawal, um, essentially, we are treating like the home tank of, let's say, 20 zebrafish with, let's see, what the, what the dose was, one milligram per liter of morphine. It looks like chronic morphine one week. So for a whole week, they were in a tank, in their home tank, with one, one milligram per liter of morphine. When we take them out, we either give them naloxone or just put them directly into the novel tank. And what we'd expect is like, if they were fine and just cruising, like if they just had a short dose of morphine, they would be swimming at the top. They would not be, you know, they would have much more transitions from the top to the bottom. They would spend less time freezing. There would be less erratic movements. That's what we see with short term. If we go long term, then cause withdrawal, it's the exact opposite. They're frozen at the bottom for the three minutes. Then they do like a, a seven second erratic movement followed by a, a three second freeze followed by another erratic movement. So it's a, how many times did they sit frozen for a little bit? How many times did they uh, go through the erratic movements? And you can see that like with the erratic movements uh, in particular, like if you look at the, uh, what is this would be two a, you know, the amount of erratic movements was significantly higher between the drug, the, the control fish that were not exposed to drugs, yeah. the chronic drug uh, exposed drugs. That was the, so with those, we just took them out of the tank and put them in. And so like within the first seven minutes, we wouldn't expect them to go through a draw. But then with the draw fish, we hit them with naloxone immediately and then put them in the tank. And that was what induced the withdrawal. It's interesting the similarity between the fish and how mammals would react. Do biologists look at this and and, and use that kind of for what they study in, in human behavior and ma mammalian behavior, fish behavior, a kind of a comparative understanding of how like a substance would affect yeah yeah both. so translational like, is it yeah. is it translational between the different species and so like of course they already had had uh, thousands of studies where they were looking at morphine withdrawal in mice and so 
you know, with the open field test that I was mentioning earlier, you sort of get the same profile. Like they're yeah. not crossing the middle, they're frozen the whole time. And so, you know, that, that aligned well. And with zebrafish, yes, I mean, there is translational value there. And so like where the genetics came into play is they have all of the same, they have two dopamine receptors. They have all three of the morphine receptors. And so then we could like knock out a morphine receptor and see if they still go through the same uh, degree of withdrawal. Or like uh, in the lab down the hall from us, you could make new opiates and have that as a powder and then treat them and treat them for two weeks and then induce withdrawal with naloxone and see if they are just as stressed out based on their erratic swimming and or their cortisol levels uh, or not, right? And so the value of the zebrafish in a translational perspective, like it allows you to screen a hundred uh, candidate novel opiate structures um, for the ones that uh, uh, induce the least amount of withdrawal behaviors and physiological response. And then you can narrow that down to like, okay, here were the five that, that didn't seem to cause that bad of withdrawal. And you take those into mice and you just keep on moving up the chain, you know, the, the species chain. I just watched this piece on uh, drug use in the animal kingdom called Cocaine Bear. So we I know saw that and I had no idea what it was. <laughs> It's a great movie. We went we went to the theater and saw it. It's hilarious. But I'm talking about uh, drug use in the animal kingdom. Like we know, like uh, dolphins can eat puffer fish and get high. And I'm sure this has been covered on Joe Rogan. But there, is there any? Is it mostly intelligent animals that would do that, like on purpose, or like would zebrafish in the ocean find like a fermented piece of coral or something and keep eating it yeah, for any reason whatsoever zebrafish yeah <laughs> yeah probably not they're in rivers um like in oh, okay. uh, primarily of southeast asia um and so i don't know what they would go for like when it comes to the sea animals yeah i would think much higher order or like maybe octopi but i was going to mention like the fermented apples like i think everybody's seen the video on youtube where essentially like you know, hyenas to elephants to giraffes to like almost every animal on you know in the serengeti they know that if they come to this particular tree after the fruits had fallen off and given some time to rot, that they ferment. And then essentially they all just gorge themselves and then pass out after wobbling around for a little bit. So, you know, they certainly um, do have, and I, I don't want to say it's not like drug seeking behavior. I would always classify it as like, we're interested in modifying the sort of parameters of our perception um, and just changing that, I think, in order to understand it a little bit more. And, you know, maybe it's the same for, for some of the other animals. Cocaine bear probably, his um, mouth probably got numb and it, he felt good. So he's just like, all right. <laughs> well, yeah, with cocaine, like with all those drugs that hit the dopamine, you know, yeah. the, essentially like it's the same pathway that you get when you have sex, right? So they're like, oh, wow, that felt really good. I'm going to do that again. And there was a cocaine bear in real life, but they just found him dead with a bunch of chewed open kilos of cocaine <laughs> well and so what yeah so is that what they found or was there like that was real life repeated use i think he just ate until his like heart exploded because the beginning of the movie is non-fiction it was a, a guy was paranoid that he was being followed by the dea or something so he dropped a bunch of cocaine out of a plane he had a cessna or something and then he like took a bunch with him and he just parachuted into the woods 
and he was going to run away, but he was too weighed down. This is real life. He was too weighed uh-huh. down by the cocaine, and the parachute, is, he descended too fast, and he died, and he ended up in the middle of the woods. But there was a plenty of cocaine in the forest, and they still haven't recovered it at all, but they found a dead black bear with a bunch of chewed open packages of cocaine around it, and they took it some. They took the blood test. I was just reading the article, and it was like four grams of cocaine in its blood, in the bloodstream. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's so it high. had eaten like something like they estimated, think about it, like 30 kilos or something like that. Anybody listening can look it up and correct us in the comments, but mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's what happened. But the movie is great. The movie is, um, I think the right guy who wrote it is like, it's my twisted fan- fantasy on what would happen if a bear ate cocaine in the woods. So it's hilarious. It's pretty funny. And you would assume that like it, it got into this stuff, felt good, and then just kept going until it overdosed rather than yeah. like, you know, he saved a little bit and came back the next day. Yeah. That would be wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how much how much cocaine does it take to kill a bear? It's I mean at least like thirty kilos, but it would probably be less than that. <laughs> but I think he just kept eat, eating until he died. Anything else uh, about the zebrafish? You know, figuring out and laying the foundation of this withdrawal behavior, like essentially what we were studying was anxiety and affective state, like uh, yeah, different you know stress, high stress, low stress, antidepressants, all of that stuff. And like coming from it from a psychopharmacology perspective, using withdrawal in order to understand how an animal behaves when it's stressed is just like one angle in which you can approach their behavior, right? And so, okay, we're going to induce drug withdrawal, and now this is how they behave. And now we have like a template for this is what a stressed out fish looks like. There's other ways to approach it. All fish have this thing called alarm pheromone where if a fish gets eaten by another fish, you know, it gets like chewed up or bites down on it and it ruptures their skin cells. And the skin cells release this thing called alarm pheromone. So we would do it where we would just put a zebrafish in the novel tank and we would have extracted alarm pheromone. And, you know, the instant that alarm pheromone hit the water, they just started freaking out like crazy. Like you just just see it. it. And it resembled what the withdrawal state was. So, you know, this was, I'm glad you sort of picked this paper in that, you know, this was one of the very first ones that we studied. This is probably my freshman year of graduate school, but it was really like the combination of all of these things coming together to where we could then move on and be more confident in, you know, okay, let's now study novel antidepressants or let's study novel anti-anxiety medicines because we knew what a stressed out fish was and what a not stressed out fish was. We're then able to make, you know, inferences about, all of these new chemical compounds. So, you know, it was really, really important to get that foundation there. And, you know, of course we studied it and we probably, you know, uh, we did, I said we did the Kratom one, like, you know, less than a dozen times with maybe 10 to 15 fish each. But the amount of times that we like modeled withdrawal or did chronic treatments to then induce, you know, withdrawal, you know, that was in the hundreds. And it was the foundation of a lot more, you know, we could then go from there and say, okay, let's induce withdrawal to have one stressed out fish and put it in a tank with a school of fish and see how that changes, how close they come to the other fish. So like, is there a social separation because this one's going through withdrawal and it's a high anxiety state or does, you know, does having the other fish in there, does it get closer and sort of alleviate, keep cortisol levels down? 
so yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was fun stuff. I look back fondly on it, especially being in New Orleans, figuring out, like doing something that hadn't been done before, especially when it involved giving fish drugs. Uh, it was a good time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. John Cachet for 40 episodes. And you can meet him and me on April 22nd in Athens, Ohio at the Cannabis Museum Community Hemp Fair. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, or on TikTok at KR80M Science. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, share it on social media. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.